0: Sorry, folks. I didn't uh, had a little uh, technical snafu there. Didn't get on exactly on time. I'm coming to you this week from the uh, Southern Command Center behind the orange curtain. Uh, last week, I actually ran out of time answering some questions and correcting some misconceptions that I encountered in an email. And I know I said I'd finish this week, but I neglected to remember that it would be Holy Week, and so I'm invoking my hostly prerogative, and we'll continue with that next week. So that I can focus today on a little meditation on certain aspects of the passion of our Lord. Uh, the Holy Week liturgy began on Palm Sunday uh, with the Gospel, uh, uh, the Passion according to Saint Matthew. That's in the traditional Latin Mass. Church proclaims the Passion accounts from the Synoptic Gospels, uh, with Matthew on Palm Sunday, Mark on Holy Tuesday, Luke on Holy Wednesday, and then on Good Friday, the Passion according to Saint John. And I've borrowed verses uh, from all of them for today's meditation. And uh, each passion account begins with the agony in the garden. He went forth with his disciples over the Brook Kidron to a place called Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. And there was a garden. Then he said to his disciples, sit you here while I go yonder and pray. And taking with him Peter, James, and John, he advanced into the garden and said to them, My soul is sorrowful even unto death. Stay ye here and watch with me. Then, going a little further, he fell upon his face, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this chalice pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And rising up, he came to his disciples, and finding them asleep, he said to Peter, Could you not watch one hour with me? Watch ye and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. And going a second time, he prayed saying, my father, if this chalice cannot pass away, except I drink it, thy will be done. He came back and found his disciples sleeping and leaving them. He went away again and prayed a third time in the same words as before. Then he fell into an agony and his sweat became as drops of blood trickling down to the ground. And behold, an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. Then, going a third time to his apostles, he found them still asleep. He said to them, Sleep now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Behold, he is at hand that will betray me. To understand our Lord's agony in the garden and his sufferings which followed, you have to remember that the divine nature of our Lord Jesus Christ could not suffer, that it was only his human nature which could suffer and die, and moreover, that his human nature, being inseparably united to his divine nature, could only suffer as much and for as long as he willed it to suffer. Christ entered on his passion of his own will, and he did not allow his agony to take possession of his heart till he had left the eight apostles at a distance and brought with him only those three who had been prepared for the sight of him in his agony by the vision of his glory on Mount Tabor. But in order that the human nature might suffer, the divinity abandoned it to itself and and withdrew from it, as it were, and deprived it of all inward consolation, as we see in the gospel. Our Lord so humbled himself, his suffering was so great, that he even sought consolation from mere creatures, from the apostles and the angels. And at the very beginning of his passion, he wished to leave no doubt that as man, he suffered everything profoundly, and that fear and pain caused him every bit as much anguish as they would an ordinary man. And so he testified to his heavenly father that his human nature detested these torments and wished to be freed from them. His prayer, take this chalice from me repeated three times shows this to us. And what precisely caused this terrible agony? Well, we've already seen that he foresaw the torments that were awaiting him. I mean, how would you feel if at this moment you learned that you would be slowly tortured to death tomorrow? Our human nature shrinks from death, especially from a violent death. And the most painful as well as the most shameful and humiliating of deaths awaited our Lord. And the prospect filled his soul with horror because he was truly man, like to us in all things except sin. Therefore, as man, he prayed to his father, let this chalice pass. But since there was no sin or defiance in his human will, It remained in full submission to the divine will. And so he added, thy will, not mine, be done. Our Lord took the sins of men on himself to offer satisfaction to the divine justice as our representative. Just as all sinned in Adam's transgression, so now all would be redeemed in Christ's sacrifice. But now that he was on the the point of completing this work of redemption, all the mass of human evil and, and abomination and guilt came before his holy soul and filled it with revulsion. St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.21, Him that knew no sin, for us God hath made sin, that we might be made the justice of God in him. It's impossible to imagine how our most holy Lord must have felt to take on the sins of the whole world. Bishop Jacques Bousset, a court preacher for King Louis XIV said, Jesus saw all our individual sins and grieved over them as if he himself had committed them. For he had taken on himself the burden of them all. Truly the grief of this alone would have killed him if he had not held back his soul in order that he might endure still more and drink the chalice of suffering to the very dregs. He would not die on the Mount of Olives because his life was to be sacrificed on Calvary, but he shed his blood, the bloody sweat of his agony, in order to show us that sin alone, without the help of any executioner, was sufficient to strike his death blow. No one can understand, as did our blessed Lord, the utter malice and wickedness and ingratitude of sin. And the sweat of blood that was forced from his veins by his sorrow for our sins should move us to greater contrition to make us sorrier for having sinned and more determined to hate sin and to avoid sin in the future. Also, our Lord knew beforehand how many souls would be eternally lost in spite of his passion and death because they would not believe in him and would not love him. (coughs) Pardon me. This knowledge tortured his sacred heart because he loved our immortal souls so much that he came down from heaven to save us. His agony, therefore was not for himself alone, but for his, for his brothers and sisters. So many of whom, in spite of his sacrifice would cast themselves into hell. He was willing to be bound and scourged and crowned with thorns and nailed to the cross to save the souls that were made in his own image. And yet he knew that for very many, his precious blood and his sufferings would be wasted. This is what caused the extreme agony and anguish to the heart of Jesus. Pardon me. <coughs> I got a little spot in my throat here. This is what caused the extreme anguish to the heart of Jesus because it's so full of love for us. And there's so many lessons here, but first must be how to bear suffering. When you consider our Lord suffering such agony of soul, surrounded by the darkness of night, waiting for the arrival of his enemies, his disciples asleep. What did Jesus do in this time of intense suffering and abandonment? He prayed to his heavenly father. He resigned himself entirely to the divine will, and that is just what you and I should do. In grief and in fear in need, we should turn to God and humbly submit ourselves to his holy will. Prayer should always be our first response and not our last resort. And our Lord gives us the example of how to pray. He prayed with devotion from the bottom of his heart and then retired a little way from the apostles that he could be undisturbed. He prayed with humility, both exterior as well as interior, because he fell on his face, humbled himself before the majesty of God. He prayed with confidence, He prayed with submission to God's will. And he prayed with perseverance, for he said the same prayer over and over again. Even though he received no visible answer to his petition, he didn't leave off praying. But as the scripture says, he prayed the longer. He thought more, also in the midst of his agony, of his disciples than of himself. Watch and pray, he said. And that, uh, I, I take that especially to heart, because ut vivas vigila, watch that you may live, is the motto on the Arnold coat of arms. People are very weak, we're very prone to evil, so we have to keep a careful watch over our thoughts and our imaginations, over the movements and desires of our heart, over our senses, especially over our eyes. It is by such watchfulness that we can avoid what is sinful, or else to overcome it in its very beginnings. It's by watchfulness that we shall escape many temptations, and that we can uh, come victorious out of the struggles with sin, which are unavoidable. We're going to struggle with sin. But as St. Thomas Aquinas said, learning whom to avoid is a great means of saving our souls. And that includes not only bad companions, but that includes entertainment and social media. And finally, Jesus prayed, let this chalice pass from me. And so the question must be, could the chalice have passed? And that's what we're going to answer when we come back uh, after the break with lots more No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. So wonderful to have you along with us. Uh, and like I say, we will be back in, in just moments. And so I invite you to stay with us because there's so much more regarding our past. to No Nonsense Catholic, talking about the agony in the garden and the prayer of our Lord, let this chalice pass from me. And before the break, I asked the question, could the chalice have passed? And the answer to that question is yes. The divine justice could have been satisfied without so much terrible suffering on the part of our Lord, because he's an infinite person. Being God, each act of expiation, each suffering of Jesus has an infinite value. His very smallest suffering would have been sufficient to pay the whole debt of sin and to appease the justice of God. But what was sufficient to reconcile us to God was not sufficient to cleanse us inwardly from sin, to keep us from sin. That's why Thomas Aquinas tells us it was fitting that Jesus went undergo this passion, because what does the satisfaction made for us by our Lord avail us? if we still love and cherish sins in our hearts, if we persist in sinning more and more until we die in our sins, nothing. So yes, the divine justice could have been satisfied with a lesser expiation and thus the chalice could have been removed from our Lord. But what would have satisfied the divine justice was not sufficient to satisfy the divine love, which knows no limit in its desire to draw us away from sin And move our hearts to a grateful love in return. And so the bitter chalice did not pass. And our blessed Lord suffered indescribable agony of soul and body. In the first place. To put before our eyes. In no uncertain terms. The evil and the horror of sin. And that's been the subject of meditation and inspiration for for great works of art for 2,000 years. The scourges that tore the flesh of Jesus. The thorns that pressed onto his sacred head, the nails that pierced his hands and feet, all of the tortures that he endured for our sake, teach us more impressively than anything else could, what a terrible evil sin is, and what a heavy punishment it deserves, and how grateful we should be to Christ. Now I mentioned uh, that in the traditional Latin Mass, Holy Week includes all four accounts of the Passion, Uh, Matthew on Palm Sunday, Mark on Holy Tuesday, Luke on Holy Wednesday, and then the Passion according to St. John on Good Friday. Naturally, on Holy Thursday, which is the anniversary of the first Holy Mass, the epistle is from St. Paul's account of the consecration at the Last Supper, and the gospel is the washing of the apostles' feet from St. John, Right, the Holy Thursday episodes. But the gospel for Holy Monday— Couple of days ago. It was the account of the anointing of our Lord's feet in Bethany. And that's where we're going to begin our focus on a particular character of the Passion, an apostle named Judas Iscariot. All the accounts of the Passion, of course, feature Judas' betrayal of Jesus, and how at the Last Supper our Lord prophesied that betrayal. Pardon me. But before Jesus' Passion began, even before his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Judas revealed his true character when Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, anointed his sacred head. And by the way, tradition, and that includes the traditional Latin Mass and the divine office, has always considered the sister of Martha and Mary to be the same person that we know as Mary Magdalene. Okay, Mary Magdalene and Mary of Bethany are just one person, and that's, that's for another time. Uh, but this anointing of Jesus by Mary Magdalene is likewise present in all four Gospels. Mary brought an alabaster box, a pound of the most precious ointment, and she poured it on the Savior's head as he was at table. Now the whole house was filled with the perfume of the ointment. But Judas Iscariot said, Was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence? And why, rather, was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor? When the other disciples also had uh, indignation and said, For what purpose is this waste? Now Judas made this remark, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and carried the purse. See, he was already possessed by the love of money, which a few days later would lead him to betray his master. But Jesus, knowing what was going on among his disciples, exclaimed, Why do you trouble this woman? For she hath wrought a good work upon me. For the poor you have always with you, but me you have not always. For she, in pouring this ointment upon my body, hath done it for my burial. Amen, I say to you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, that also which she hath done shall be told for a memory of her. Now, there has been, since the rise of modernism, an attempt to kind of rehabilitate Judas. Some would say that since Judas was expecting an earthly messiah, the His betrayal of Jesus was only a a misguided attempt to compel our Lord to manifest his divinity and usher his kingdom in with power and majesty. But sacred tradition, sacred scripture, know nothing of this. On the contrary, they plainly reveal that Judas had an inordinate love of money, that he was covetous or avaricious. Remember St. Paul, that the love of money is the root of all evil. So he didn't resist this evil passion, and so he fell by degrees into greater sins. He began by stealing, but then, his Scripture tells us, he displayed the most shameful hypocrisy by pretending that he only cared about the poor, whereas his real object in, in blaming Mary's alleged extravagance was to facilitate his thefts. In the hardness of his heart, Judas robbed the poor of the alms due to them, and from his treachery toward them, he proceeded to treachery towards his Lord. Now you contrast his hypocrisy to the devotion of Mary Magdalene. By the anointing of our Lord, Mary wished to demonstrate her deep love for him and her gratitude uh, for the raising up of her brother Lazarus. And she used the most expensive ointment money could buy to show that she was ready to offer up everything she valued most for his sake. And we hear a lot of talk these days about a simpler church and the desire that we have a poor church for the poor. And that's all well and good. I mean, after all, when Jesus Christ founded his church, they were philanthropists, but there was nothing like organized charity. The very concept of which the world owes to the Catholic Church. But Mary's example teaches us that we should not economize when it's a question of the worship of God or the building or beautifying of of his churches, or the use of costly vestments and vessels. The praise bestowed on Mary by our Lord shows that such offerings in his honor are pleasing to him, provided they're made in a spirit of love and reverence. And also that there will always be folks like Judas who will condemn generosity in God's honor and call it a needless extravagance, who will say that, that the money would be uh, far better spent if it was given to the poor. And yet how much do these critics really care about the poor? What do they actually, you know, what did they actually do for the poor? Christianity teaches that we ought to do the one, but not leave the other undone. And this episode was a foreshadowing of Judas's treason, which was then foretold by Jesus at the last supper. again, All four Gospels share this story. Whilst they were eating, he told the apostles, Amen, I say to you, that one of you who eateth with me shall betray me. And they, being much troubled, asked him with one voice, Is it I, Lord? He said, The Son of Man goeth indeed, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man shall be betrayed. It were better for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who betrayed him, said, Is it I, Rabbi? But Jesus replied, Thou hast said it. Then Judas rose from the table and went out, and going immediately to the high priest, sold his master for thirty pieces of silver, and promised to betray him into the hands of the high priest's servants. Now it goes without saying that Satan hates Jesus, and that he's been trying to outwit God ever since the creation of man. And the covetousness of Judas gave him the apparent means of attaining his end. But our Lord, who knew the wicked purpose of Judas' heart, tried to win him back from the road to hell. Jesus even washed the feet of this most unworthy of men. But in spite of Jesus' love and humility, the heart of Jesus remained untouched, and he persisted in his purpose of delivering up the Lord into the hands of his enemies." Jesus said, the son of man indeed goeth as it is written of him. Our Lord died of his own free will, yet Judas was still guilty of his betrayal. And on that account, Jesus pronounced woe on him. Woe to that man by whom the son of man shall be betrayed. It were better for that man if he had not been born. Now, Some modern theologians try to keep Judas out of hell, but I can't imagine what else these words can mean. But in the same way that God once turned the crime of Joseph's brethren to a good purpose, namely the salvation of the Hebrew people from famine, so he allowed the wickedness of Judas and the unbelieving Jews to enter into the plan of redemption and to allow their sin to be the cause of that death, which brought salvation to the world. You know, I mentioned that Judas had his feet washed by Jesus as well as the other apostles. Likewise, Judas received the body and blood of our Lord along with the other apostles. According to the Gospel of St. Luke, he didn't go out until after the institution of the Holy Eucharist. He made an unworthy communion, for he had already agreed in his heart to betray his master. And neither the humility with which Jesus had washed his feet, nor the love which made him give himself to the apostles as, as the bread of life, could turn Judas away from his evil purpose. And after his unworthy communion, his heart became hardened. The love of Jesus didn't move him. The threat of everlasting punishment didn't deter him. Our Lord's solemn words of warning made no impression. He remained obstinate and gave himself over to the dominion of Satan, who drove him to commit a crime so terrible that a human being could not have committed it without his help. So behold the consequences of unworthy communion. To this day, unworthy communions still lead very many people to spiritual blindness and hardness of heart. Uh, Last week, I was on the Terry and Jesse show, and and Terry Barber and I discussed Nancy Pelosi's recent, uh, recent speech at Georgetown, you know, where she doubled down on her apparently unshakable support of abortion and even denounced Archbishop Cordiglione for his fidelity to the Church's teaching on faith and morals. Uh, which includes, of course, the fact that the good Archbishop has denied Speaker Pelosi from receiving communion on account of her very public and very unrepentant heresy, in other words, for the good of her soul. And I sometimes wonder how such a person as Ms. Pelosi can possibly present herself for Holy Communion or even call herself Catholic when she so clearly abhors the Catholic doctrine on faith and morals. And then I remember the communion of Judas, and I think, oh, that's how. The case of Judas illustrates how low a person can fall who despises warnings and resists the inspirations of grace. By degrees, he becomes so hardened and indifferent that he's capable of any sin. And how many Catholics today fail to take good advice to heart and act on it? How many prefer listening to the suggestions of bad companions? And again, that would include media, social and otherwise, rather than to listen to the inspirations of the Holy Ghost. Or the advice of those set over them. Such as these harden their hearts and follow in the footsteps of Judas. Now when we come back, we're going to talk about the betrayal itself. And a little later on, we're going to talk about another character, St. Peter, and his denial of Jesus and how it differs from the betrayal of Judas. All that and more coming up on Donuthead Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic, and now the betrayal of Judas. While Jesus was yet speaking, Judas came with a great crowd of soldiers and servants from the chief priests and ancients. Now the traitor had given them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that is he, hold him fast. As soon as he saw Jesus, he approached him, saying, Hail, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, where to art thou come? Judas, dost thou betray the Son of Man with a kiss? A kiss is a token of love, faithfulness, even reverence, like think of the priest kissing the altar. But Judas used it for the purpose of treachery. He didn't want to appear to be a traitor in the eyes of Jesus and the other apostles, but our our Lord let him know at once that he saw right through it. Yet he did not refuse the treacherous kiss. He allowed his sacred face to be touched by the lips of the traitor. He even called him friend. St. Jerome, in the Latin Vulgate, renders his words amice, ad quid venisti. And the translators of the Douay-Rheims version rendered it friend, where to art thou come? Literally, "amiche, friend, ad, to, quid, what, venisti, have you come? Now, modern translations, like the New King James Version, tend to render it as, friend, why have you come? The Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition offers, friend, why are you here? And you may well wonder, why the difference? Well, the original Greek is hetaire, which is friend or companion, f, to, ho, what, perei, are you come? Now, this can be taken two ways. It can mean to a place or a state, to what have you come, or for a purpose, what have you come for? So technically it can be translated with either meaning, although the words why and here do not appear at all in the original language. The real question is, what did our Lord mean to say? St. Jerome and the Douai Reims favor the former interpretation. Friend, where to art thou come, means friend you whom I have called friend, treated as a friend, what have you come to? See, if the translators of the Dewey understood the intent of his words to mean why have you come, it would have been translated wherefore art thou come? Why? For what purpose? But instead, it was translated where to art thou come? To what state have you come? You whom I call friend, that you would betray me with a kiss. You see how it makes sense that way the question, where to art thou come, is a moral rebuke leveled at Judas, but it's applicable to you and me. You know, our Lord might ask the same question of anyone who commits a mortal sin and and thereby betrays him just as surely as Judas in the garden. To what state have I fallen? To what state have you fallen? That we betray our Lord by our moral treachery, especially the Judas kiss of unworthy communion. Now, given that biblical Greek was St. Jerome's native language and the fact that he's also one of the four great Latin doctors of the church, I'm going to stick with his le- Latin translation of the Greek and the Douay-Rheims uh, faithful English translation of the Latin. But I would be remiss if I didn't mention the New American Bible, which is what we read at the, the Novus Ordo, and its somewhat more formal counterpart, the New Catholic Bible, which I often employ in this program, because both render this verse as an imperative statement. The New American Bible says, friend, do what you have come for. And the New Catholic Bible says, friend, do what you are here to do. So in the case of all these modern translations, you have a, a dynamic equivalent interpretation of the meaning of his words rather than an accurate translation of his words. You know, it, you know, in every case, the modern versions go beyond translation and reword the verse either into a prosaic question. Why are you here? Um, or an imperative sentence, do what you have come for, that seemingly commands Judas to betray him. You know, and I'm sorry, but Jesus knew perfectly well why Judas was there, and had even prophesied his betrayal. And the choice to betray our Lord is Judas' responsibility alone. So those five words, where to art thou come, can be the source of conversion for you and me, just as they might have been for Judas. And certainly this this verse has been a, a source of fruitful meditation for centuries of Catholic saints, a question that, you know, properly translated, goes straight to the heart of a sinner. The words, where to art thou come, were for the ungrateful Judas a last hour of grace. Jesus gave him to understand that he still loved him in spite of his crime and was ready to forgive him even now if he would repent. But Judas resisted this last grace and remained hardened and unmoved. So what became of Judas? After the arrest of Jesus, the mockery of a trial before the high priest, the the council assembled to pronounce the sentence of death on Jesus. Scripture says, Then Judas began to be sorry for having betrayed Jesus his divine master, and going to the chief priests, he would have given back the thirty pieces of silver he had received as the price of his treason, saying, I have sinned in betraying innocent blood. But they replied, What is that to us? Look thou to it. Then, being filled with remorse and losing all hope, he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and went out and hanged himself with a halter. See, Judas knew perfectly well how much the majority in the Sanhedrin Sanhedrin hated Jesus. And he might have foreseen that they would condemn him to death once they had him in their power. But his greed blinded him, and it deprived him of the use of his reason, so that it was only after he had received the blood money that the voice of conscience made itself heard and reproached him for the death of his master. Those 30 pieces of silver that he so eagerly craved no longer gave him any pleasure and hoping for some peace of mind, he tried to return the money. And by openly confessing his guilt, he apparently hoped to get the sentence of death against our Lord repealed. I have sinned by betraying an innocent man for money, he said. And what was their response? Did they say, what? He's not guilty? He doesn't deserve death after all? No. They contemptuously said, what is it to us if he's innocent or not? See thou to that. In other words, you reconcile it with your conscience as best you can. Further, they didn't take back the blood money because to do so would be a a tacit confession of the injustice that they had done. And there was nothing that would have persuaded them to set Jesus free. So when Judas saw that nothing could prevent the consequences of his deed, he fell into despair and committed suicide. And we know that Satan had taken possession of Judas's heart. According to Luke 23, on Holy Thursday, Satan entered into Judas, and he went and discoursed with the chief priests and the magistrates how he might betray him to them. So when Judas's conscience reproached him with this awful thought, I'm guilty of the murder of my Lord, Satan drove him to despair. That's how sin works. Before the deed was done, the evil one induced Judas to sin, blinding him so that he didn't perceive the atrocity of his crime or the consequences. But once the sin was committed, then the devil showed Judas its full horror and whispered to him, as he had once whispered to Cain, that his sin was too great to be forgiven. Judas might have obtained pardon even then if he had possessed the proper dispositions. Consider this. Scripture says he repented himself. His actions show that he really made a firm resolution of amendment, for he would not have committed that same sin again for any price. He confessed his guilt with the words, I have sinned, in betraying innocent blood. And he made what satisfaction he could, because he gave back the blood money, tried to get the sentence of death reversed. And yet, and yet for all this, Judas still lacked true penance. And you might well ask, well, what was missing? And the answer is that his contrition, his sorrow, lacked hope. And sorrow without hope doesn't lead back to God, but to despair and to eternal separation from God. Judas' betrayal of our Lord was a terribly grievous sin, and yet the worst sin he committed was to despair of the grace and mercy of God. His great sin might have found forgiveness, but there's no forgiveness for the sin of despair because the one who despairs of God's pardon denies the infinite mercy of God and therefore can't benefit by it. To despair of God's mercy is one of the sins against the Holy Ghost. And Jesus said of such sins that they will not be forgiven either in this world nor in the world to come. Therefore, Judah's confession of his sin did him no good. If he'd thrown himself at the feet of Christ, confessed his guilt to him, full of confidence in, in the love and mercy of God, implored his forgiveness, no doubt he would have been granted it. But as it was, in his despair of God's mercy, he sought consolation from men and confessed his guilt merely to the members of the Sanhedrin. And when they scornfully rejected him and laid all the responsibility on him, his last comfort was taken away. And the burden of his guilt was so heavy that he didn't have the courage to bear it. As Bishop Sheen said, feeling like there was nothing more to hope for from heaven and unable to find peace on earth, he hanged himself between heaven and earth. Now, I want to say that all this does not mean there's no hope for those who commit suicide. Catechism of the Catholic Church identifies suicide as a mortal sin, yes, but it also recognizes that the culpability of a person can be lessened in certain circumstances, and, and, and also uh, recognizes the hope of God's mercy. We never lose hope. You can read about it in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 2280 through 2283. Matthew says that Judas hanged himself. St. Peter in Acts 1.18 says, being hanged, he burst asunder in the midst, and his bowels gushed out. And Of course, some of the modern translations simply say that Judas fell without mentioning that he was hung, so consequently, some folks have tried to imagine a contradiction there, but of course, there isn't one. The common explanation of uh, peter's words is that when Judas hanged himself, the rope or the branch broke, and he fell, and his body burst open now I suspect i mean that that seems unlikely unless you know this idea proceeds from the happy fact that We no longer live in a society, at least in the West, where people are hung and left to rot, because what Peter is describing is uncomfortably consistent with precisely that. Speaking of St. Peter, we're going to consider his denial of our Lord and how it differs from Judas's betrayal when we come back with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I want to say, by the way, thank you for listening. Please stay with us for the final segment. We will be right back, as they say, after these messages. Okay, from the betrayal of Judas to the denial of our Lord by St. Peter. At the Last Supper, Jesus told the apostles, All you shall be scandalized in me this night. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered, Whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Peter said to him, Why cannot I follow thee now? Yea, though I should die with thee, I will not deny thee. And in like manner said all the disciples. Jesus answered him, Amen, amen, I say unto thee, the cock shall not crow twice before thou deny me thrice. As an aside here, our Lord exactly foretold that Judas would betray him, that St. Peter would deny him three times, that all the apostles would desert him. This is a proof of his divinity because only God in his omniscience can know beforehand what a person gifted with free will is actually going to do. Also, I would mention that it was love. That prompted Saint Peter to to speak the way he did, but he clearly trusted too much in himself, you know, forgetting the weakness of his human nature. His was a good will, but he was wanting in humility that comes from a knowledge of your own frailty. You know, remember Jesus said, "Without me you can do nothing." We should never forget that without the assistance of God's grace, we can neither keep the commandments nor persevere in good works. Now, when they came to arrest Jesus in the garden, Peter. Peter impulsively cut off the ear of Malchus, servant of the high priest. And then Jesus said to Peter, put up thy sword into its place, for all that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot ask my father, and he will give me presently more than twelve legions of angels? How then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that so it must be done? Now, this always puts me in mind of the story of King Clovis, who was the first of the the royal converts of Christendom. When he heard a uh, sermon on the Passion, he leapt to his feet and put his hand on his sword and cried, O Clovis, where wert thou with thy valiant franks? See, it is, it's a natural desire to want to defend our good Lord. But St. Peter was trying to prevent what he saw as a defeat, because he did not yet realize that Jesus was giving up his life voluntarily and that victory in his kingdom would not come by the sword, but through faith and obedience. Peter, according to Mark and according to John, Peter and John followed Jesus at a distance, even to the house of the high priest. Peter warmed himself by the fire in the courtyard, and one of the maidservants of the high priest looked at him and said, This man also was with Jesus of Nazareth. Peter denied him, saying, Woman, I know him not. Immediately the cock crew, and after a little while a man coming to Peter exclaimed, Thou also art one of them. But Peter said, O oh man, I am not. Now after the space of an hour, a certain servant saw Peter, and pointing him out to the others, affirmed, Surely thou all art also one of them, for even thy speech doth discover thee. Right, his Galilean accent. But Peter swore that he knew not the man. And then the cock crew a second time. And the Lord, turning, looked at Peter, and he went out and wept bitterly. Peter's sin was a very grievous one. Out of the fear of man, Peter lied three times. He denied his faith. The third time, he even swore falsely. You can see the sin of Peter grew and became more grievous each time he committed it. That's one of the reasons you should avoid bad companions. If he'd simply left after the first denial, he wouldn't have compounded that way. Because in his first denial, he simply said of our Lord, I know him not. And the second time he asserted, I know not the man. And, and repudiated any connection with Jesus. The third time he confirmed his assertion by an oath. See, the same Peter who said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, now contemptuously calls his Lord the man, acting as if he didn't even know his name. And this was the same Peter who a few hours before declared that he was ready to lay down his life for his Lord. But then again, all the others said the same thing, but only Peter was in the courtyard. Now his denial, I think, is is somewhat understandable. He was thoroughly exhausted, he was confused, he was half out of his mind, Um, so sorrowful and and so overwhelmed by the circumstances, and moreover, in, in that company around the fire, he was in very real danger, he was in danger of his life, because of his association with Jesus, and finally, he didn't sin from malice, but from weakness and anxiety. And he didn't lose his faith, although he outwardly did deny it. Like I say, though, he was the only one in the courtyard. St. Matthew and the other evangelists don't tell us where they were hiding at the time or what happened to St. John. But we know that Peter was there. Now, at the rooster crow, the second time the cock crew, he remembered our Lord's words. And, you know, coincidentally, Jesus appears at that moment and the look, he saw the look on his face and and Peter wept bitterly because unlike Judas, the repentance of, of Peter was both real and supernatural and was in fact perfect contrition because his sorrow was entirely over the fact that he offended his beloved Lord and and, you know, not for any bad consequences that would come to him. And so... Peter repented of his ingratitude, and that's an example for us, especially if we should uh, be so unfortunate as to fall into mortal sin, to do penance at once, like Peter. You know, if you sin, you realize that you make an act of perfect contrition in your heart, and then look at his example. His contrition wasn't passing. Uh, his sorrow over the denial of Jesus oppressed him his entire life, according to the tradition. You know, um, if you've ever gone to a traditional mass, you notice that the priest wears a a vestment called a maniple, right? It matches the chasuble, but it's a strip of cloth worn over the left arm. And that liturgical vestment was inspired by St. Peter, who could not say mass without weeping. And so he always draped a towel over his arm with which to dry his tears. Now, all throughout his ministry, Peter worked you know, ceaselessly, untiringly for the glory of Christ and the salvation of souls, which is uh, or should be an example to all of his successors, the popes. That and the fact that he constantly preached the gospel until he finally gave up his life for Jesus. So yeah, Peter's denial was a great fall, no doubt, but his repentance, his penance was greater still by his contrition and, and a, a satisfaction that lasted for the remainder of his life, he joins Mary Magdalene uh, as a, a model of true repentance, true penitence. You know, every Lent, I, I come to dwell more and more on the episodes that I shared with you today, which is why I shared them. Obviously, there's so much more to the passion. I I, that's just one of the reasons that the the church traditionally read all four passion accounts during Holy week, because you know how many, how many sermons would it take to do justice to the, to the passion A, a lifetime's worth, I suppose. But every Lent I try and take my own advice and I meditate on the passion of Christ. And every year I am more and more aware of how alike I am to Peter and to Judas. And when I contemplate Jesus bound and taken a prisoner, I'm still tempted like Clovis to put my hand on my sword and cry out to the Jews, stop, unbind him. He's your God. He he delivered you from the bondage of Egypt. He was the one who went before you in a pillar of cloud. He led you to the promised land. Woe to you if you lay a hand on him. But then my faith says to me, spare your indignation. The Jewish servants and the pagan soldiers could not have held and bound Jesus if it hadn't been for your sins. Truly, they did not know what they did, but you do. So when I contemplate the ingratitude of Judas and St. Peter, I'm compelled to remember how often that I too have been ungrateful to my Lord and how grateful I am that the Church gives us the Liturgy of Holy Week To help me and you to bear in mind that every sin, every sin we commit, especially every mortal sin, especially unworthy communion, it is a shameful act of ingratitude towards God, our Father. It is a a dark treachery towards Jesus, our Redeemer. But the good news is that after Good Friday comes Easter Sunday. And that's what inspires hope in the midst of our contrition that the victory is won. Christus vincit, Christus regnat, Christus imperat. Christ conquers, Christ reigns, Christ commands. And that's no nonsense. Well, we're just about out of time for this week, and I, I hope that I shared something that you will find valuable in your own meditation during this holy week. I also, I want to uh, uh, hasten to point out that, that much of what I shared today, I mean, much of it is, is just my own thoughts, but, but so much of it is inspired by two sources, especially the commentary on Holy Scripture, practical commentary on Holy Scripture by Bishop Justus Snecht and the explanation of the uh, epistles and gospels by Father Goffin and i would uh mention to you these are terrific sources both of them they're um i think tan still prints the practical commentary on holy scripture father goffin's explanation of the epistles and gospels i'm certain is out of print but both of them have been scanned as pdfs and are available for free on archive.org so you can go there and search them and, and as, as i prepared these remarks you know i went back to these sources to look at them and and i realized that they have had a great influence on me, not, not unlike uh, Bernard of Clairvaux and Thomas Akempis, to the point that I've, I've thought about them so much and repeated them so often that they feel like my own thoughts, <laughs> but credit where it's due. Uh, these, are, these are wonderful uh, so, uh, sources, resources, I should say, and they're in the public domain. That is the probably best use of the Internet today is to be able to avail yourself of these traditional catholic resources and uh you know that we're uh, probably be the only thing that's going to help us through the crisis in the church that we're facing right now and that's no nonsense all right uh, until next time thank you so much for listening if you have the opportunity uh it's it's still lent it's still a time for almsgiving please visit vmpr.org hit the donate button and and uh you can help us out financially and certainly with your prayers which we appreciate so very much And uh, download the the VMPR smartphone app and you can access all the shows and all the other great content that we have there. And uh, and I really encourage you to do that. It's the best source uh, of all the things that we have to offer. And in the meantime, and until next time, Happy Easter. Thanks for listening. And may God richly bless you and your family.